0: Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm John Zippero, the club's vice president of media and editorial. Now we hope you're staying safe and are well, wherever you are. We have produced more than 550 online programs since the beginning of the pandemic and will continue to live stream programs to the world. But we're excited that we have begun announcing our first in-person programs in more than a year, including on July 1st, when Michelle and I will be back with our first in-person program featuring TikTok star Nick Cho, whose millions of followers know him as Your Korean Dad. So head over to CommonwealthClub.org and find all of our upcoming programs, plus podcasts and video of past events. Those of you who are joining us for the first time, the Commonwealth Club is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization dedicated to the civil discussion of important issues of the day. Any views expressed are those of the speakers. And if you're watching us live on YouTube, Use the chat box to submit questions for our special guests today. And now it's my pleasure to hand this off to Michelle Miao. She's the producer and host of The Michelle Miao Show and a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. Good to see you again, Michelle.
1: It's great to see you, John. I mean, still through the screen, but I'm here at the Commonwealth Club, and this is just incredibly exciting. So I can't wait to see you and everyone else back here in person. If you're joining for the first time, the Michelle Miao Show is your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. Today we have an exciting program for you. The Family Acceptance Project at San Francisco State has released A a series of eight Asian language posters that contain information on how to prevent suicide, but also promote the well-being of AAPI LGBTQ youths and children. And so here to speak with us about the importance of this work are educators, advocates and parents. We have with us today Marsha Izumi, who is co-founder and former president of PFLAG San Gabriel Valley Asian Pacific Islander and also the co-author of Two Spirits, One Heart. We have Clara Lee, who is the founder of API Rainbow Parents of PFLAG New York City Chapter and also co-founder of Korean American Rainbow Parents. And Dr. Caitlin Ryan, who is a clinical social worker and educator researcher and the director of family acceptance project at san francisco state university we're so excited for everyone to be here first we'll start with dr caitlin ryan dr ryan let's talk about the family acceptance project and the work that you do as well as you know of course this exciting new project the a uh, series of eight asian language posters and how that will impact our community dr ryan
2: Thanks, Michelle. It's great to be with you and with your audience today. This is such an important topic. I wanted to lay out the past to show us a way into the future. I've worked in LGBTQ health and mental health since the 1970s. The seeds for these Healthy Futures posters that are behind me in English were planted 40 years ago. I was sent to Atlanta at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic by my graduate training program to do clinical training. And at that time, I helped start the first AIDS organization in the South. I worked with very racially diverse gay and bisexual men and their families during a really devastating time. There was no treatment then. People with AIDS died very quickly. Many of their parents came from small cities and towns to meet their their dying gay or bisexual adult child. I met them at their bedside, Many of them learned for the first time that their son was gay or bisexual and was dying of AIDS. The perception at that time was that all parents rejected their, their children, their gay children, and weren't capable of learning to support them. But I saw a very different window. I saw a wide range of reactions. I saw people at a devastating time when very few of them ever expected that they'd be in a situation like that, and parents who would have done anything to change the future. But they couldn't. I knew that we needed a way to explain what we would now call LGBTQ identities to very ethnically, racially, religiously, and of course, linguistically diverse families. And, and most of all, we needed to start with solid research and a family support model to help them learn to support their LGBTQ children, even when they believe that being gay or transgender is wrong. So more than 20 years ago, Uh, After I'd worked in AIDS for a very long time, I moved to California to start a research institute at San Francisco State University. That's when I started the Family Acceptance Project with Rafael Diaz to do the very first research on LGBTQ young people and families to develop the first family support model to help those diverse families learn to support LGBTQ young people to reduce risk and promote well-being. And to do this work in the context of their cultures and faith traditions. That's why I started this work, and it's what ultimately led to developing the Asian language versions of our Healthy Futures posters. These posters show how family rejecting and accepting behaviors that we measured in our research impact health and well-being of LGBTQ young people. Our research showed for the first time that families matter and Most of all, it showed that families who are struggling can learn to support their LGBTQ children when guidance is provided in ways that are culturally relevant for them, ways that we'll talk about in this program today, like our evidence-based Asian language posters that are available online to download free. Um, Every day, about 40 downloads happen off of our website from across the U.S. and, and countries around the world. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Dr. Ryan, and yes, we will have a much more in-depth conversation later on in the program about some of the research and the data. Uh, but let's welcome our parents to the conversation, Marsha and Clara. Uh, we're also equally excited to speak with you, and you both have been sharing your stories all over the country and helping many parents out there. But um, we do this here traditionally on the program, actually. So it, it is, I think, the first time that I'm doing it differently. We always do a coming out story. We share a coming out story here in the program, and it's asked of LGBTQ folks who come to the show, but today I get to ask the parents of LGBTQ people to come out. Uh, so, Marsha, why don't we start with you in sharing your coming out
3: story? Sure. Uh, thank you so much for having us here uh, today. I am the proud mother of a transgender son, and I guess Aiden would say our coming out was twofold. It was a 1.0 and a 2.0 because Aiden was assigned female at birth. And so in the beginning, uh, you know, he just thought, okay, I'm a girl that likes girls, so I must be a lesbian. So that was 1.0. And I don't think I was really that surprised because he had always been kind of like a tomboy. But then um, five years later, after so many years of withdrawn uh, behavior, depression and suicide. He came out to me again and he said, Mama, I'm not, I'm not a lesbian. I don't even think I'm a girl. I'm a transgender boy. And so at that point, we started to help him to transition. I remember the moment he told me we were in the Chinese restaurant. And the moment he said that, I realized all the sound around me went away. And all I could do was focus in on his face because he was so afraid. He was afraid to tell me, and he was afraid of how I reacted. But um, I told him, we're gonna do this together. And that's what our journey has been. Thank you so much for sharing. Clara. Thank
4: you so much for having me here. Um, So I live in um, New York City, and I'm a Korean American 1.5 generation. So when i was raising my kid in new york city um i thought that i have achieved this american dreams my um and i was living in new york city which is a very progressive environment and i was working for a big financial company and i even had a gay boss and we had an amazing diversity and inclusion training i thought i was very progressive and a cool mom and i remember I even told my child that it's okay if you come out as a lesbian. But when my son came out as a transgender when he was 14, 15 years old, that was about 10 years ago, that was a different story. I think the negative images of a transgender people in media probably played a big role. Um, I've never seen any other transgender person in my life in person. And in the Asian immigrant community, there is a certain expectation on what it means to be a successful, um, having a successful life and being happy. And for me, my child coming out as a transgender, it just didn't fit that image. And I just didn't know what to do and, and how to think about it. Um, I felt like I failed my role as a mom, and uh, I felt so stuck without having any path kind of showing up. In front of me. So that was a very dark moment um, 10 years ago, right? Um, Things are much different now, and I'm happy to talk about what has helped me out uh, in that journey.
1: Thank you so much. I hear from both of you, you know, in that um, part of the process, there, of course, there were moments of hardships, there were some barriers and some challenges. What would you say were some of the hardest or the most difficult?
3: Uh, barriers or challenges that you face. Marcia? Um, sure. I think uh, some of my most difficult barriers uh, were just the feeling of shame that I had as a mother. Uh, like I, I said, Aiden's adopted from Japan, and when he was placed in my arms, the the only thought that I had was I was going to be the best mother ever for that child. And um, when he came out, I felt like... Um, I had let him down. And I think the other hard part was just all the fear. You know, what kind of life is my child going to have? Uh, is he going to find somebody that will love him? Is he going to be able to go out in the world and be his authentic self at work? Um, and so those are really difficult moments uh, for me as a mother. Um, and and I think uh, just having to tell our family um, was really hard as well. I think when he came out as lesbian, it wasn't that difficult. I think uh, he was really expressing himself very masculine so people weren't surprised. Um, but yet, when you're ch- actually changing your gender, then it becomes more difficult. Um, and, and my family, I'm very lucky, was very accepting. Um, but we did have you know, a few people that we had to distance ourselves because they just couldn't accept Aiden um, as he was. So um, yeah, I think that was really hard. Clara?
4: For me, it took me about a year to get my head around and have to make a difficult decision to support my uh, child's transition. You see, um, he was uh, underage at that time and I had to give consent to whatever that he needs to do for his transition, including legal, social, and medical um, procedures that he had to go through. And I was afraid that my son would blame me later. What if he changes his mind? But then in one parent support meeting, I saw a mom crying so hard and, and found out that um, she has a young adult trans child who was going to have a surgery and he told his mom not to come she was devastated and it made me realize you know i'd rather have my son in my life and support his transition than having him go through the transition all by himself you know that whole type of mom um asian type of mom the mentality i guess kicked in i i really want my son to graduate with a good grade go to college and go through the transition. And I want him to be able to do that with the best possible uh, care, best possible doctors, best possible legal procedures, whatever that's needed. But that was my mindset. Mm-hmm. But uh, going through that, that um, initial uh, hesitant to be able to support him, that was a very hard part.
1: You know, I remember when I came out to my mom, uh, who's a refugee from Laos, I think one of the biggest challenges that we both faced together was a language barrier and not just you know not me not really knowing how to say it in lao um, but and her english being broken but also i couldn't explain or define you know the specific terminology or the words you know that are part of my community and how i would explain it back to my mom so in some ways we were at a loss for words, and, and it created this distance between us because we just stopped talking about stuff. Um, what cultural aspects, if, if any, did you experience that might have made it difficult? Marcia?
3: Um, I think for me, initially, um, the shame was really difficult. In the Asian community, that, uh, you know, keeping things private and not talking about things that are negative um, was hard and also just feeling the shame when I was growing up, when I was young. I remember one of my elders said to me, um, "Your our, our family name goes back to the samurai times. They never do anything to dishonor our family name. So when Aiden came out, my first thought was I was dishonoring our family name. But I think, you know, this is a journey. It is a process. And for me, I have... Um, I've come to the conclusion I can honor my family the best by standing up with my son, loving him, and letting him know he he will always have a place to belong and that um, his family will always be with him. So I think shame is a huge thing. And because of that and the privacy, I think it makes it hard for us to reach out for support. And that's been really critical for me Um, PFLAG was an organization that I went to that had support. Uh, Dr. Ryan's work on the Family Acceptance Project gave me language and gave me um, behaviors and actions that I could do to support Aiden, and also things that were not helpful. And both of those were really critical for my journey to support him. And also when I did things and I found out I did things that were harmful, and what I wanted to do was apologize, and apologize became part of our journey as well. So, um, you know, I think our, our cultural uh, held me back in some ways, but in other ways I've been able to break through some of those uh, just because I've been leading with love for my son and wanting him to have the best life ever. Clara?
4: So when I think about cultural barrier, um, I realize it's not only limited to one's own ethnic background, but how you were brought up. So in any culture, if people are not exposed to LGBTQ people on personal level, or if they're a part of the faith community that are not supportive of uh, LGBTQ people, then it makes it hard to accept your child because it kind of goes against your value system. And also, um, Michelle, I agree with you the one of the biggest barrier for many Asian parents is the language. And I think they believe that, uh, some of them believe that being an LGBTQ is a, is a choice and their um, child became gay or transgender because they immigrate to the United States. Even parents who are proficient in English, you know, seeing and hearing about LGBTQ topics in their own language makes a huge difference And another thing that I also wanted to point out is that being able to see other parents like you. So I remember the first time that I met other Asian parents for the first time, right? Uh, I've been going to people like uh, meetings, just like Marcia did, but I never seen any Asian parents, and I thought I was only one bad parent who couldn't accept their own child, bad Asian parent. Yes. And then and then I met Marcia and. And it was such a profound moment and a turning point for me. There's this woman who's doing a um, tour of her book and went through the same process as I I am currently going through, looks like me. And and Marsha became my uh, friend, my mentor. And she's the one who told me whatever that she learned through... Um, uh, Caitlin's work. She was the one who taught me how to be the better mom and how to be able to uh, support my kid in a positive ways.
1: Mm, yes, and and also pride celebrations. I mean, it's Pride Month. Happy Pride, to mm-hmm. everyone! Uh, but I think when my mom started seeing many other LGBTQ people, but you're right, LGBTQ parents. You know, and then it just kind of flipped for her, where she's like. I am an LGBTQ parent too. And, mm-hmm. you know, here, he, he, and all of a sudden she wanted to show me off. It was kind of great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it was amazing. Yes. Um, but to that end, I mean, you obviously have learned a lot and you're out there and you're supporting other parents. What are a few things that you could share with us today about uh, what you've learned in your journey? Marsha?
3: Gosh, so many lessons. I think I was living in kind of this rose color bubble of, um, And then my husband, my son came out and all of a sudden it thrust me in just this different world. And I think with that world came so many, many learnings. One of the things that uh, I think I've learned is I can be brave and scared at the same time. And um, this comes from Brittany Brown. um, uh, For those of you who know uh, Dr. Brown's work. And I think for me, I didn't have a guidebook. I didn't have a manual. And so I just had to listen to my heart and just be brave, even though I was scared. Um, so much of this journey, as Claire is talking about, I mean, we've been on this journey together and I think that we have, um, you know, we have both depended on each other too. Uh, and, uh, Dr. Ryan's work depended on resources that were really important. So for me, I think uh, just giving myself permission to be scared, but still do it. But in the end, the most important thing I think for me was to uh, really lead from my heart. Listen, you know, is this making Aiden's life better? Is he feeling good about what I'm doing as well? And then also just Falling in love with the LGBTQ community and meeting all these amazing parents and knowing that I'm not alone as well. Clara. So for me, I had to learn
4: that the value system that I thought was absolute truth can be changed. That The way that I was brought up, the way that I was taught, those are the things that I realized that I can I can unlearn. Um, there was a lot of unlearning that I had to go through, but now I feel like I have a better awareness of, of myself and how I relate to others and, and the people around me and a lot of things in this life. You now, my son and other API LGBTQ community really helped me with that process. I'm so grateful for that. Um, you know, as an oldest of the family, I was brought product to take care of others, and the family comes first, right? But I realize that I can actually apply that to the broader API LGBTQ community and the parents um, who struggle to, um, struggle to accept their kids. I mean, in some ways, like expand this definition of the family and create a, this big family where where we can support each other. So in some ways, you can, the, the culture, right, the, the way that we are brought up, I think it can be shifted in a way that will help you to work um, in a better ways and more effective ways.
1: I, I love that. I mean, I wanted to add a question to that because, you know, this has been such a tough year for so many of us. Um, but, at, you know, for our AAPI families, for myself, you know, I love myself as a queer person. I think before I accepted myself as an AAPI person because of the deep racism that I had experienced growing up and just recently in seeing all the anti-Asian hate and violence and racism and having to take all of my experiences of people who had been anti-LGBTQ towards me and then use that to stand up for my AAPI community, you know, it has been a huge learning experience, but also... I just feel very proud. And so earlier I had asked about the cultural barriers that might have made it, you know, difficult in learning LGBTQ or accepting LGBTQ, but what are some of the cultural barrier or not barriers, I'm sorry, cultural aspects that, that add to, right, like fighting for others and treating folks with respect and equality? Uh, Marcia?
3: Yeah, I mean, I... I really think that, uh, you, you touched on the respect piece. I think, um, also collectively as a Asian community, we are more collective. We're more really, uh, united as a family. I see that in the more American culture, it's very individualistic. And I think in the Asian culture, we've got some of that too, but we've also been, um, been raised to look out for our family. And so that's part of the shame piece, but it's also part of the piece that I think uh, collectively we we are looking out for each other. And I remember, um, you know, I used to worry about Aiden because he's transgender. And then when this Asian piece came up and all these anti-trans bills came up, you know, I, I feel like I have to worry in multiple areas. So I appreciate so much all the people that are speaking up and all the people that are doing work in this area, you know, to support our community, not just the LGBTQ community, but also our Asian community.
1: Clara, anything to add to that? I totally agree with what Marsha just said.
4: Um, one thing that I, I noticed while supporting other parents is that at some point, once the parents go through the acceptance and, and really truly uh, start being supportive of their kids, they actually uh, become a, such an advocate for their their children. And I think uh, the, the fact in our Asian culture, you know, we take care of our own family, right? And we just expand that, that definition. And then they will just do anything. And one thing to remind ourselves is that as a parent, you know, when you are standing up for your child, in any given uh, space, people will have to listen. The, and and I think uh, Caitlin also, Dr. Caitlin Ryan also mentioned that in one of the items, like, stand up and speak up for your child and be their the greatest advocate. Um, that just totally changes the way that my son also um, look at himself. And um, I, I see him, you know, navigating this world as a, as any young others should be. So it has been just a wonderful journey for my uh, for my side.
1: Thank you both so much and for sharing your powerful stories and for doing the work. I mean, I, I feel uh, incredibly blessed and lucky. And I think so many folks who are joining here on the program, do feel the same? We have some questions from the audience that we'll ask a little later. And so, if you do have questions, feel free to send them through that chat box. But right now we're going to turn our attention to Dr. Caitlin Ryan, who has a presentation for us to walk us through some key findings and some data and how this has all affected our community. and And so now, here is the presentation with Dr. Caitlin Ryan.
2: This is a really short presentation, uh, you know, given the short time frame that we have today to give the participants a feel for what this work is all about. As I said, it's kind of startling to think that until 20 years ago, nobody had studied the families of LGBTQ young people. And the perception was that all families were rejecting. Of course, I knew that that wasn't the reality because of my work in the AIDS epidemic, not only in the U.S., but also in other countries, um, and in particular working in Asian countries and with AAPI. Uh, young LGBT people and families across the US. So I started this project at San Francisco State University to not only do the first research, but to change how we train providers uh, to develop the first family-based support model that is really grounded in the cultural worlds of diverse families and their LGBTQ young people, and to develop informed public policy. Because when I started this work If a family was in conflict and the perception was that it couldn't be resolved, that young person would be removed from the home and placed in residential or foster care or uh, kept away from the family because the perception was, was nothing that could be done about it. And that has terrible outcomes when young people are removed from their homes. So we really wanted to change the frame and certainly to change the future. We found in our research that families not only play a critical role, but that how they respond to their LGBTQ young people has a powerful impact on their health risks and their well being. We also found, and unfortunately it's continued even now, that across the board there's a real lack of family services for families with LGBTQ children and youth, especially diverse families from different socioeconomic backgrounds, different cultural, religious, um, linguistic experiences. That persists today, and it's especially compelling and challenging coming out of the pandemic when so many young people have been confined with their families. And if we think about it for a minute, being confined for a year and a half with a family that's rejecting of who you are or a family where you've had to be invisible for a year and a half cut off from the sources of support outside your home. We need these services now more than ever, and it's one of the reasons why I'm grateful for Marsha and Clara and the many other parents that I've really been fortunate to work with over these many years. We know that LGBTQ young people and adults are at risk for a range of negative, serious negative health and mental health problems, not because of who they are, but because of what happens to them, because of how people treat them. And this includes, unfortunately, family rejection. The really good news about this, and I can say this now from the benefit of 45 years of working in LGBTQ health and mental health, is that families matter. They can make a difference. The family intervention model that we've developed can help families that are struggling not only learn to support that LGBTQ young person, but prevent these serious negative outcomes and change their futures. So our research was done uh, all across California from the top to the bottom of the state. We started with in-depth individual interviews with LGBTQ young people and families. And we learned an enormous amount in thousands of pages of uh, bilingual transcripts in English and Spanish. And one of the things we found were a hundred different behaviors that parents and caregivers used to respond to their LGBTQ children. And we measured these behaviors with many other things in a survey of LGBTQ young adults. And then we spent two years doing briefing sessions with LGBTQ young people and families from very different backgrounds in five different languages, having those families and young people teach us what did they need to be able to help change behavior? What would help people from their cultural worlds, in their backgrounds, what kinds of resources, materials, what should they look like? How should we prepare them? And then we spent another two years developing a family support model that we've been implementing in different kinds of settings around the U.S. So what we did was we looked at those range of uh, adolescent experiences, including how their families responded to them, how they engaged in those accepting and rejecting behaviors, including religious-based rejection, as well as cultural rejection. And then we measured all of that in this young adult survey and learned an enormous amount. These are some of the common rejecting behaviors. I've worked in many different countries outside the US and with all different kinds of cultures. And I found that the behaviors that we've identified and measured show up across cultural worlds, they're readily understood. And one of the tragedies is that parents who engage in these rejecting behaviors are really motivated by trying to help their children by helping them fit in have a good life be accepted by others we also and we found for example that as these behaviors increased so in other words when there was a lot of them there was a high level of rejection during adolescence we saw high levels of risk as a young adult for high levels of clinical depression or illegal drug use or risk for uh, HIV infection and high levels of suicide attempts with lots of those rejecting behaviors during adolescence, a more than five times, more than eight times rather likelihood of attempting suicide as a young adult and cut cut by three quarters with moderate levels. We found that as these behaviors went up, so too did the level of risk. And of course, as they went down, so too did the level of risk. Uh, One of the things that I think is especially challenging is that these rejecting behaviors are normalized across cultures, and they're reinforced and transmitted by culture and religious beliefs. Parents and caregivers learn how to parent intergenerationally, so these behaviors are transmitted as a way of dealing with something that, as Marsha was pointing out, was shameful or distressing or would um, reflect negatively on the family. And one of the things that's really challenging for our young people is that they expect these behaviors, so they don't even see them really as something that's harmful, but often see them as the cost of staying connected with their families. These are some of the more than 50 accepting family behaviors that we identified and measured among the most important, of course, supporting your child's gender expression. And other ways that you can support that LGBTQ child, even with your strugg- when you're struggling, such as requiring that your other family members treat that LGBTQ young person with respect because they're a member of the family. So as those supportive behaviors and affirming behaviors go up, so too does the the overall level of well-being, better family relationships, higher self-esteem, lower levels of substance abuse, suicidality, depression, better overall health. So we've turned this research into lots of different kinds of tools and resources Uh, family education booklets on our website in three languages, including Chinese and uh, the beginning of a faith-based series that are actually best practice resources for suicide prevention that anyone can download for free. And uh, at least 20 of these, 25 of them are downloaded from all over the world every day. We've now disseminated about 600,000 copies in 70 countries. A video series that shows how diverse families learn to support their uh, their LGBTQ young people, showing who they are, showing their cultural worlds. Our Healthy Futures posters, there are three different versions with a guidance that tells people what they are, how we develop them, gives ways to use them in English and Spanish and eight different languages in four sizes, and you can download them right now from our website. Actually, these are all the different languages that we currently have, and I hope to do more of them. Because the heart language, the first language, the language that we learn to live with and live in, it's so important to communicate these concepts in that emotional language. It makes it so much easier for families to really understand and talk about these issues. So language is really important. So the series is, um, these posters, I'm really hoping that uh, governments, cities, towns, congregations, schools Clinics, libraries, all of our public settings use these posters that they download them, print them, uh, make them available to teach everyone about these behaviors because everybody needs to know about them. Uh, These are some of the multilingual resources that we have for families from the Family Acceptance Project. One of the things we're working on now is a communications campaign coming in August with a central webpage where families and LGBTQ young people will be able to download information that will help them connect with resources to increase well-being, reduce risk, and promote mental health. Uh, These are some of the AAPI resources from uh, Marsha's group and Clara's group. Marcia and Clara actually helped us develop and coordinate the translation and rendering of the Asian language versions, and these other groups did as well. And these are some additional resources that can be helpful. And each one of these groups is connected to more resources and spaces where families can really learn and get support. Getting peer support, learning to advocate for your LGBTQ child, and then advocating for others, that's not only how we build healthy families and healthy futures, we build a healthy society. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Ryan. And let's welcome back Marsha and Clara. We do have a few questions from our audience. And so um, I think we'll open it up to all of you if you feel passionate about answering the questions, because I think they apply to all of you. The first question is, what are some of the cultural differences between different ethnic backgrounds within the API community that should be taken into consideration?
4: Maybe I can go
1: first. Sure. So I think this is a really beautiful, um,
4: wonderful question, because although we talk about AAPI, you know, there are like multiple languages, multiple different cultures and multiple histories, right? And one of the things that I think it's really important for people to be aware of is that the way that the parents um, be, behave or respond to certain things are based on their own past experience and past trauma. So, for example, I think Marcia can mention about the internment experience. Um, In Korea, we have a Korean War. Some of our parents went through the Korean War and uh, the way that they think, and then the very uh, turmoil, um, the political uh, space back before they moved to um, U.S. And in Vietnam, um, there was uh, this whole refugee uh, type of a history, right? So I think uh, those are the cultural aspects that people should be aware of when they're doing the work with any of the API community.
3: And just to add on to what Clara said, I think um, there are a number of different organizations. And first, when we started with uh, PFLAG Asian Pacific Islander, we thought that we would be reaching out to all these Asian communities, but what we found is, um, you know, the the Hindi commu- Hindu community, Desi Rainbow, Satram, they have their own organizations. So the Vietnamese, and so what we've uh, what we've done is rather than try to bring all of them into our P flag, um, we have partnered with these others that are much more culturally aware of their uh, communities. So like the Vietnamese community, the Japanese community. So I think all of them have their unique uh, aspects. And language, of course, is one that makes it really difficult because there's so many Asian languages. Dr. Ryan, anything to add?
2: Um, I think the Anglo-LGBT community has been pretty homogenized. And um, as a result you know, the the enormous diversity of um, Asian cultures, it's, it's been, never been really reflected and AAPI LGBT people in the US have been relatively invisible. I think the complexity may be overwhelming to that homogenized queer world. And yet in my work with families in other countries and across the US, they are dealing with their lived experience. Uh, seeing something of someone else's culture is not only not helpful, oftentimes it can be horrifying. And one of the things that I think many families have expressed is a feeling that their child is being pulled away from them, from their family, from their cultural world. And so the need really, the profound need to address the support and the well-being of your child in the context of your cultural world is one of the most important things that families can do. And I think as we begin to think about increasing the range of uh, services, in particular, mental health services for LGBTQ people, this is something that is imperative. And for me, always being able to uh, have the resources to do different languages is so important. And with this project, um, Clara and Marsha and 40 other AAPI uh, translators, reviewers, designers, helped us create these posters because when we started them, we didn't have the resources but the need is there the need is profound and being able to understand the specific experiences is really what helps families start to grow and change so it's essential
1: we have another audience question what would you tell aapi parents who want to support their queer and trans children but are struggling with their emotional journey
3: um I understand that so much because I struggled so much in the beginning. So, um, like for me, I think I always center on the word love and what does love look like? And for me, love really looked like listening to my child, what they said, what they didn't say. Uh, love looked like having very difficult conversations. Um, and, going back and forth in our communication, making mistakes, saying, I'm sorry, uh, keeping our hearts open and our spirits open. So finding resources and support, I think for me was critical. And I know as Asian families, we tend not to do that, to kind of get out there um, in public in that way, but uh, find resources, and if you're not ready to go to a group, find another parent that you can maybe talk to, because I think feeling alone and and not knowing where to go, it was one of the most difficult things for me. And when I was able to find resources and support, what I found was hope. And I
4: I wanted to add to what Marsha just said. Um, the one thing that I that many people realize in Asian culture is. Um, not all, but we tend to not talk about any issues, right? We tend to put that under the rug and hoping that it will go away. And then there is a, just a stigma of uh, mental health care uh, within the Asian community. So to I, for anyone, any parent who are struggling with their mental, you know, emotional journey, I think they, I want them to realize that it is okay it is a part of the normal process. And um, the, having this, um, being okay with uncom- uncomfortable feeling and being okay with all the different feelings, sometimes we don't even know the, how to describe our feelings because um, you know, we were never taught to be able to express ourselves fully. Um, I, I think it's really important for us to be able to recognize that we are only human. And it's absolutely okay for me to go through these different emotional stages and and okay with that. But at the same time, just uh, as uh, Marsha mentioned, I think um, you know if things are getting out of hand and if things are becoming too difficult, and I think it's okay for us to seek the mental health care and then do the self-care for ourselves and then do reach out to others who went through the similar process as, as you did um, so that you can find a community. Just feeling of um, that I'm not alone in this journey makes a huge difference um, in a way that, that you can think about you know, the next steps.
2: I, I would just add that as part of our family support model, culturally relevant peer support is one of the most important elements, as Marsha and Claire are talking about, being able to talk to someone else from your cultural world who understands, who knows what it means, It's shameful. It's hard. You know, one of the things I learned when I worked in Asia was the public-private behavior split. And, you know, so many of the elements of having an LGBTQ child require you to be public in cultural worlds where there often aren't precedents for expressing these shameful and distressing feelings. So being able to do this one-on-one through the support groups that are now being established you know, in the U S and in other countries is so incredibly important. And one of the most hopeful things for me is that even coming out of this pandemic, I think there's a greater awareness of the need for resources and support. And I've seen, you know, the rapid expansion of services for families. I've worked on this issue for years and struggled to find people that would even think that it was relevant. And now I think more recently, there's a perception that it is relevant and we need to address people you know, in the context of their lived worlds, what their worlds are, what their language is, what kinds of resources they need. And I I didn't really see respect for that in the past as I see it now.
1: Hmm. We have another question. And I think a lot of us are thinking this, and Marsha, you had brought this up, you know, talking about shame. And so if we could stay on the topic of shame an audience question, uh, We have is what about AAPI parents who are struggling with what they feel is the shame from their culture of origin?
3: I think for me, because that was probably one of my strongest uh, feelings when uh, Aiden came out, um, looking at the research that has been done with the Family Acceptance Project really pushed me over or pushed me through some of that. When I saw that. Uh, if I lived in the shame and I didn't use uh, supportive language, behavior, that it would increase Aiden's chance of uh, turning to risky behavior like drugs and alcohol. It would made him, make him lose hope. I mean, even in spite of how we tried to support Aiden, he still was suicidal. And so But I felt like because we did more than we thought because of our education, that he didn't lose hope. And so I think hope is so important. Um, So I would say look at some of this research. Look at Dr. Ryan's research. And for me, I wanted a child that was going to be happy and healthy and not one that was hopeless and that at one point gave up his hope and chose not to live. I mean, my child today is thriving and I think he is thriving because he is loved, um, and he is accepted and he knows that he will always have a place to belong in our family and in the wider LGBTQ community too. So, um, I know it's hard in the beginning with the shame, but it, but you can move through it. And, um, I think I'm an example of, of being able to do that.
4: Uh, just to add to what Marcia said, um, the kind of a feeling that the parents usually go through in the very beginning, um, what I did was I was asking myself, like, why am I feeling this way? What's the underlying value that just interfered uh, with the fact that my son is not, um, came out as a transgender? And then at one point I realized that um being different doesn't make somebody wrong. I think the reason that we are feeling a bit of a shame or a bit of a um, anger or whatever the feeling that we were going through, I think it all stems from the the worry that this outside world, the things are the the life that our kid is going to go through, it's not a typical life that that you know we were told to strive for. And once I started questioning that um and and questioning the my existing value system and try to unlearn and try to look at it in a different perspective, the my the feeling of shame and guilt those kind of went away because I realized, oh, I can look at things in in a different perspective, and this world is so still so not safe for my child and or other LGBTQ community. And if I'm not, if I cannot support my kid, then who will? Right? You know, so as a parent, like I had this very strong sense of like, I I cannot help, but I, I do need to support my kid. I do need to support the community. Because otherwise they will, they are being subject to discrimination and being marginalized. I just couldn't bear to see that.
2: One of the things that we do is we align our um, approach with families with their underlying values and their cultural values and religious values. Uh, and of course, as, as Marcia pointed out, being able to see that with the increase or even the presence of these family rejecting behaviors, the likelihood of health problems, you know, serious health problems, including the risk of suicide is much greater and that's shocking for families that we've worked with that thought that trying to change your child or trying to make sure they fit in with others or not letting them look a certain way that that will help their child they're shocked to find out that it's harmful one of the things that i um, recommend and it's actually one of the accepting affirming behaviors that we identified and measured in our research is finding a positive role model from your cultural world to give your child a sense of the future and also to show your extended family, maybe your even family uh, in the country that you might have emigrated from, this is a really important person in our culture. And now that we have so many celebrities and um, politicians and doctors and you know clergy and all kinds of people coming out in different cultural worlds who are LGBTQ, this gives parents a place to turn to, not only for a role model for their child but to help increase a sense of affirmation and that this is okay, that my child will be okay, and it's culturally appropriate because people are from our background as well. So that's a, a more recent change, I think, that is very helpful for families, especially when they're starting with this is the worst thing that could happen.
1: Thank you so much for that. All of your answers are incredible. I, I mean... Ellen's not uh, Lao or Lao-American, but my mom calls me her Ellen. So <laughs> she goes out there in the community. And she says, my daughter is the Asian Ellen. I'm not that funny. But I do want to add, you know, on the shame thing as a queer child, I was so ashamed I let my mom down. You know, I did not marry a man, didn't marry a doctor, didn't become a doctor, <laughs> cut all my hair off. But I'll tell you, The day that I decided to rise above the shame and be happy for myself, my mom changed as well. And so all of that shame and guilt all of a sudden went away. We have time for one last question. Um, This is from an audience member as well. And do each of the speakers have one or two suggestions of how LGBTQ adults can support families of LGBTQ youth? Are there actions we can take to work in solidarity with these members of our community? So share a, a point or two. We'll begin with Marsha.
3: Oh, boy, let's see. Um, I think that uh, to support families is, as an al- if you're an ally, to really, um, I think that uh, to support families is as an if you're an ally to really um, like talk about issues and talk about your support. Um, I think at work if you're part of any diversity, equity, or inclusion committee, to really use your voice to to say the LGBTQ uh, community does matter, because I think. You know, our children go to work, their parents go to work, they see um, this kind of support from our allies. And I think it's so critical. I mean, we could speak as parents and LGBTQ individuals, but if we have these allies that are helping to push issues and support forward, I think that's amazing. Clara?
4: Yeah, inclusive uh, behavior is so important. So oftentimes, um, if you're an API, you've got a big um, family function. Uh, instead of asking your nephew, hey, do you have a girlfriend when are you getting married? Let's use a uh, um, gender neutral uh, pronoun right? or the words. So and then, um, you know, just make yourself visible as an ally. I think that's really important. Talk about the LGBTQ topics, normalize the conversation within your family, your community, your church, and the workplace. Um, another thing that I also wanted to recommend is um, reach out to the nonprofits in your area that supports the LGBTQ youth. Um, you can be their mentor. You can support organizations. Um, and uh, you can also um, be, you know, take the lead uh, do the volunteer work. I think there are many things that we can do, but, you know, start from your own family, start from your own workplace. I think that will make a huge difference.
2: I would suggest that um, people visit our webpage, learn about these materials, uh, ask all of the settings that you're involved with, schools, clinics, libraries, congregations, workplaces, um, the employee resource groups in the workplace, the diversity uh, involvement that's really expanding and growing, Um, health, mental health settings, social services. Not only should these posters be in all kinds of settings where children, youth, and families are served, they should be in all public settings. Imagine a child being um, in a hallway in a school and seeing a poster like this and realizing those things are happening to me and never really understanding that those family-rejecting behaviors are really harmful and that they don't have to happen. Because if you see side by side, accepting and rejecting behaviors, all of a sudden you learn that, you know, having your family tell you they're ashamed of you or excluding you from family events and activities, family reunion, not letting you have an LGBTQ friend or participate in LGBT support activities, that those are really harmful and they're hurtful. And there are other ways that they can help you. We need to teach everyone the language of acceptance and rejection. Everybody needs to know about this. This information should be everywhere. And I hope that just as we see information about adverse childhood experiences now in lots of different settings, we need to understand about LGBT-related, family-rejecting and accepting behaviors, that these are part of our daily lives because parents are not only our first educators, they're our first sources of support. And I know from our work that we can decrease a lot of these serious rejecting behaviors if we start early, if we provide upstream education, and if this information is widely available. So I'm thrilled um, not only to be with you today, with Marcia and Clara, who've been so important in sharing this information everywhere, but hopeful that everybody who listens today will do what we recommend and bring this information out to the world.
1: Absolutely. Thank you all for sharing your questions with our speakers. And so I get the honor of asking, you know, the last question. We have just a couple minutes left. Um, But that's how uh, the question is, how do you celebrate LGBTQ inclusive holidays such as Pride or, you know, Trans Day of Visibility or National Coming Out Day? Um, How do
3: you celebrate? How do you show up for community? Marsha? Um, Marching, I think, in parades are, are really great. I think with our, um, with our organizations like Flag and Okaidi that I'm uh, a part of, we try to lift it up in social media or at the meetings. You know, we try to lift that up at our meetings. So, um, I think just visibility is so important. I know Clara's talked about visibility and I think those are some of the ways that we've been visible.
4: Laura? So because of the pandemic, um, I work in a uh, large investment uh, bank at, uh, at work and uh, this uh, back, my background has been on for all my June call in the workplace since last June. So uh, making sure that you know, when you are in a working place, uh, making sure that people are aware and normalize a conversation um, during you know throughout the year. But especially during the Pride um, Month or the Coming Out Month, because um, I'm also on the BRG leadership team in my company, we try to create a, create an event to make sure that that we get a chance to talk about certain topics and um, you know saying Happy Pride uh, to everyone and just talking about things. Um, I think that makes a big difference.
2: I feel like because I do this work. 365 days a year. Every day is a Pride Day, but during mm-hmm. Pride Month, um, I have an opportunity to do more um activities and involvement and um have some private time with friends to really celebrate and, and look and reflect on the changes that have happened in our world. I think it's so important to see where we've come from to help us understand where we're going. And even though we're coming out of a really challenging year and a half. I think the future is bright for our LGBT uh, young people and their families.
1: Absolutely. You know, after this year, I expect every single one of you at the front of the parade at any parade um, around the world, but, you know, maybe on a Harley Davidson or a scooter, maybe you'll, you'll uh, be honored guests of Dykes on Bikes one, one year, <laughs> if you will. Um, you know, it took me a while actually to, To say out loud to my mom or to my family, like, please celebrate pride. Please take me out. Please say happy pride. And so I agree with all of you. I'm going to bring John Zipper back to help me say goodbye. It's a tradition here on the program as he promotes also other programs we have coming up during the Pride Month. I want to thank our audience for all your questions and for being here with us today. And so take all this information um that you've learned today and do something with it and of course thank you to our speakers thank you for sharing your stories and and your expertise and hi john perfect timing
0: (laughs) well hello everybody uh thank you to our special guest today for their uh conversation and uh for those of you who are following us on youtube in the chat we've included some links to some resources that may interest you for further information um Thanks again for everybody who have been watching us and listening to us online. You can find more of our programming both online, online and in person, and in person only. Find it all at CommonwealthClub.org. And especially here in Pride Month, check out CommonwealthClub.org slash MMS for future Michelle Meow Show programs. Take care. Have a good week.